can you identify what's happening in that picture? Well, because of the subject we have this evening, there should be no difficulty. Who's the man with the hammer? Of course. What's he just been doing? That's a longer answer, but... Just for people who are uh, listening, I, I say somebody said, Martin Luther is the man on the screen. What's he been doing? Yeah, when I think of the word thesis... I think of at least 20,000 words. could be 80,000. How many theses did he nail to the door? The other way around, yeah. 95. <laughs> so if there were 95 theses at 60,000 words a time, he didn't get them onto the door of the church in Wittenberg. A thesis, you see, is simply a statement for discussion. And there were 95 of these. I wonder how many of you Twitter. Twit is a better word. Well, I didn't go down through. I downloaded all 95 statements or theses. I didn't test them all. But I tested some. And some of them would have fitted into the Twitter limits. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, neither do I. (laughs) But I know that a twit, or do you call it Twitter, (laughs) cannot be longer than 140 characters. Now think of that, it's not too long. And a number of these statements made by Martin Luther would have less than 140 characters. Church door, no surprise. We still have church notice boards, but they're not the door. In those days, in uh, 1517, the church door was the place where you nailed up what you wanted to say. Now, that was one of the most controversial statements that could ever be made, of course. And boiling to the surface came all the discontent there'd been about the church For a long, long time. By the way, who was reigning in England in 1517? Yes, Henry VIII. And he had his own difficulties with the Pope, you remember. Personal difficulties, rather than theological ones. These 95 theses, or statements, covered a lot of Lot's problems with the church of his time including the church's claim to be able to forgive sins through the payment of indulgences. The penitent sinner came to his priest, paid a sum of money, and was guaranteed to have his sins forgiven on the spot. Indulgences. And Martin Luther just couldn't have that. He couldn't find it in Scripture. And he had a lot of spiritual struggles. Here's what he wrote. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn 
and have gone through open doors into paradise. That was really a statement of justification by faith. Where does his scripture quotation come from? The just shall live by faith. Well, I won't even ask you that. You know it comes from Habakkuk originally. But Luther had been studying the book of Romans. And actually he'd been preaching from the book of Romans. And the statement, the just shall live by his faith, comes right at the beginning of the book, right in the middle of chapter 1. Paul has just introduced himself to the church at Rome. And then he comes out with this wonderful statement. Let's look at it together. I think it's 1128 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1. And I'm beginning to read at verse 16. Those very well-known words. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And now these words which I have on the screen. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. That's where Luther got his statement. Now I don't want to talk about Luther this evening. I want to talk about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. There's a tremendous statement he's just made. A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And one would have thought that Paul would then go on to elaborate on that tremendous claim. But he doesn't. Look at the very next verse. Having introduced the important concept of a righteousness from God that is by faith from first to last, he goes off on what is a seeming sidetrack all about sin and God's wrath. Now, I want us to get a very quick bird's eye view of what he says in these next chapters. Do a bit of Bible skimming. And to help you remember it, I'm going to use an outline by one of the best alliterators I know. You know what an alliterator is? Somebody who uses alliteration. Same sounds to help you to remember. No, I'm not talking about Warren Wearsby. I'm talking about our own Roy McMullen. And some eight years ago, when we were doing a series of studies in the church here on Romans, on Sunday mornings, Roy was given the unenviable task of dealing with these early chapters. And it's his outline I'm using, with his permission. Note the complete change of tone in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without any excuse. These people don't have the law. 
They're not Jews. But Paul says they have seen enough in God's creation to make them aware of God. And yet, they ignored him. Point number one, the heathen. No excuse. That's the end of verse 20, isn't it? So that men are without excuse. Now, that line of attack on human sin goes right down to the end of chapter 1. Look at the first verse of chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. Here's excuse again. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. These are hypocrites. They're attacking other people. But they're doing exactly the same thing. Go down to verse 5 of chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The hypocrites, no escape. You see alliteration? Now, in verse 17 of chapter 2, again, a change in his line of attack. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, he's gone for the rest of the world, he's gone for anyone who's a hypocrite, and now he says, you who call yourself a Jew, go down to verse 23. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And he's quoting Isaiah there. You see, the Hebrews aren't exempt either. The Jews have nothing to brag about. And then that attack on the Jews goes right down to chapter 3 and verse 8. Glance down through it, you see Jews being, being mentioned. Indeed, they're privileged, but they're still sinful. And finally, from verse 9 of chapter 3 down to verse 20, what I read last time we talked about the, the atonement involves all of us. And those of you who were, who were here will remember that Paul quotes from six Psalms, he quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from Ecclesiastes, and he says, the human race, no exception. And if you were reading uh, verse 20 or verse 19 in the authorized version, it would say the whole world guilty before God, accountable to God, guilty before God. Out of that, I want to take just Romans 3 verses 10 and 11. There is no one righteous. He had introduced all this by saying, there is a righteousness from God. Now he says, but there's no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Or if you glance across to Romans 3.23, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you learn that one in Sunday school? I certainly did. Let me put this into... A diagram, pictorially, to let you see what it's all about. There we are, us, all of us, men, women, children, 
under a cloud of guilt. Even more than that, because the guilt is within us. But, go further. But now. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now. What a contrast. But now. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So you see here in verse 21 of chapter 3, after that long seeming sidetrack, maybe I better call it Paul's necessary explanation, righteousness was required. We didn't have it. It had to come from God himself. And Paul has ensured that there can be no doubt about the plight of us human beings. Guilty. He comes back again to the the truth that he had first made known in verse 17 of chapter 1. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness it is by faith from first to last. And having shown that we need it, having shown we don't have that righteousness, now he makes the longer statement. And a, a diagram will perhaps help to show you that truth Jesus Christ the righteous son of God who went to the cross for us indeed in 2 Corinthians 5 we're told he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us now bring those two diagrams together we are guilty Jesus Christ is righteous. He died on the cross for us. And here is justification. Our guilt transferred to him. His righteousness transferred to us. Romans 3, 23 and 24 sum it all up. It's on the screen. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. Do you accept that? Is that how you see yourself? Well, let me say, it's how God sees all of us. All. All. No one left out. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's justification. Now, let me put it into a statement of belief. A lot of you won't recognize that because this sort of learning has disappeared from our churches, our Sunday schools. And I'm not not an advocate of children learning things off by rote. Though mind you, half the world do it. You've heard it from Muslim schools all over the world. You'll see Jews needn't be at the Western Wall but they're standing and they're rhyming off. We, we don't tend to use that in the West. But here's something that used to be taught in Sunday schools, and certainly I learned it. Of course, I learned it from Spurgeon's Catechism. He copied it straight from the Shorter Catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace. He didn't have to do it. He didn't need to do it, but he did it. Doing something for someone who doesn't deserve it at all. That's my simple definition of grace. 
wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed. That was the old word that you get in the authorized version. We would say today, credited to us and received by faith alone. I'm not an advocate of children learning it off by heart just by rote. I am an advocate of you having a copy of, well, it would have to be Spurgeon's uh, Catechism in a Baptist Church, just as a reference book for these doctrines, these truths that we hold dear. If I complete that quotation from Second Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? Justification. Being made right with God. Now, let me recap very quickly on what we've done. In verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul announces this tremendous truth that righteousness comes to us by faith, and he introduces it there. Then, in the middle of chapter 1, right through to the middle of chapter 3, he tells us very clearly, everyone is sinful. Not one person escapes. So that righteousness is required. And now, in the last half of Romans 3, he explains how that happens. And we've just seen that in the diagrams. The transfer of our guilt to him who died on the cross. The transfer of his righteousness to us who need his righteousness, who have none of our own. I'm not going to go down through the rest of that chapter 3. Uh, more explanation. And typically Paul, he asks questions and answers them. That's a great technique he has. If you look through the next few chapters of Romans, you will see he uses it about eight more times. Asking the question and then answering it. I suppose the most famous one is, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Grace may increase, according to the NIV. By no means. Authorized version says, God forbid. But you can read that for yourselves. We've had righteousness by faith explained in the diagram. What I want to uh, finish on this evening, because Paul's very thorough. He's done a thorough job in showing that we need righteousness, which we don't have. And then in showing how it comes through this transfer of righteousness. Righteousness being credited to us. And now he takes an example. In chapter 4, he takes an example. And he couldn't have taken a better example. Well, even for us in Windsor, because it's Abraham he chooses. And uh, we're beginning to know a great deal about Abraham these Sunday mornings, aren't we? What well, shall we say then that Abraham... Our forefather discovered in this matter. In fact, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. You see, he's going to show in the first half of chapter 4 that Abraham was justified by faith. So what does the scripture say? When God told Abraham that he would have a son, 
Those famous words in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification. And Paul sets out to show conclusively that Abraham was justified by faith, and he does so by taking examples from Abraham's experience. By the way, notice his emphasis on the word credit in chapter 4 here. To credit is an accounting term. It's a banking term. He's using banking language here. And he uses it eight times from verse 3 up to verse 11. Eight times. It's also translated reckoned and, of course, the word imputed in that old theological term that we saw in the shorter catechism. Isn't it wonderful to have money credited to your account? I reached a certain age last year and the document concerning my state pension from next April on, the new financial year, came in last week or was it perhaps the week before and there was an extra line in that statement about my pension. Age addition. First time ever. Age addition. I was going to have more money credited to my account each week in my pension. So you can see how eagerly you can cross the page to see what it was. 25p. <laughs> so, credit, a disappointment. But to have the righteousness of Christ credited to me is no disappointment. It has credit and such credit for me for the rest of my time here on earth and for all eternity. Now, let's look at these verses in more detail and I, I can't take much time on them. If you glance down through chapter 4, well, verses 4 and 5 now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. Got it? His faith is credited as righteousness. Just the same as it was for Abraham. Let me put it this way. In verse 4, person works, wages are credited, but as an obligation, that person worked for it. But verse 5 makes it very clear. person trusts. Faith is credited. But faith is credited as righteousness. No obligation on God to do it. There's grace. As far as God is concerned. And then he adds in King David's testimony in verses 7 and 8 you will see. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, some of you with eagle eyes may have been counting down through verses 3 to 11 to find the eight instances I talked about, the word credit being there. You'll find only seven. But the word count is exactly the same word as the word credit in all the other instances. I suppose, and I'm conjecturing here, our translator said, 
We can't talk about sin as a credit, can we? Because a credit is positive and sin is negative. So we'll, we'll translate the word count inst- uh, as count instead. But it's exactly the same as the other seven in verses 3 up to 11. In other words, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Now, note, this happens instantaneously. The sinner trusts, and immediately the verdict is given. I'm I'm turning now to the, the legal side of it, which you were talking about earlier. The verdict is given immediately. Not guilty, acquitted, forgiven, accepted. Whatever word you want to use. The person's faith is credited immediately. If I can go back to the banking term. There's no process. Sanctification is a process which begins immediately after justification. The act of justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace. And then sanctification begins and goes on through our lives on earth. But justification is a verdict given by God there and then. I want to go into uh, Romans 5 a little more deeply. Just a little. It's been called by some people the most important verse on justification by faith alone in all of the New Testament. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now we've seen that a sinner trusting is immediately justified. And that creates a problem for some people who find the idea of God justifying the wicked, the ungodly, to be completely unacceptable. How can you find a wicked person not guilty? That turns justice on its head, doesn't it? Well, the answer is scriptural. The answer is that God can justify the wicked, the ungodly, because you see, next chapter in Romans 5 and 6, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The word ungodly in chapter 5, verse 6, is exactly the same word as the word wicked in chapter 4, verse 5. I have no idea why the translators of the NIV made the difference, but it's the same word exactly in the original language. No, Abraham wasn't justified by works. Not by what he did. He was justified by faith. Now comes an interesting question in verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And he takes the example of Abraham once more. And the question he's asking is, when was faith credited to Abraham as righteousness? I wonder what you'd say in answer to that. I'm saying, he's 75. Because when God called him to leave Haran and go south to a place he didn't know where he was going, he obeyed. He trusted God. But if you want to be absolutely sure, then use Genesis 15 verse 6. When uh, 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What age was he then? Well, I'm conjecturing. He, he, he must have been about 85. We saw this morning. He was 87 when Ishmael was born. And when God met him in Romans, sorry, Genesis 15, he had no children at all. He was still childless. In fact, he said to, to, to God, my steward is going to be my heir. And God said, no, you'll have many descendants like the sand on the seashore. Well, he said that to him later, like the stars in the sky. Go and count them. So he had no children at all in Genesis 15. And that's when he was justified. Now, the question is, when was he circumcised? And we learned very clearly this morning, he was 99. In fact, in uh, Genesis 17, and is it, well, I don't have the exact verse here, but it says he was 99 when he was circumcised. What's the point? He was justified before he was circumcised. Circumcision had nothing to do with his justification. Now, how does that apply to us today? We are not justified by God by any kind of our religious right. Christening, baptism, either infant or believers, first communion, confirmation, bar mitzvah, no religious right will ever bring justification with God. Only by faith. David made an important point about Baptism, the Lord's Supper this morning. But they don't bring about our salvation. We use them to remind ourselves about God's goodness to us. Now, let me refer to the next part of the the chapter uh, in verses 13 to 17. Verse 14 says... If those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. A bit complicated language. Let me put it as simply and clearly as I can. Verse 15 tells us the law makes demands. If you take your eye back up again to verse 20 of chapter 3, it simply says, through the law we become conscious of sin. The law simply tells us that we're sinners. We cannot meet its demands. The law makes demands. We transgress and therefore we incur wrath. We've seen that already. But verse 16 says, Grace, God's grace makes promises. He didn't have to do it, but he did. 
He promised that when we believe, we would receive the gift of righteousness, just like Abraham believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was not justified through the law. Abraham was justified through faith and through faith alone. Now, we've looked at Abraham in the first half of that chapter as an illustration of being justified by faith. Now we see him living by faith in the last part of the the chapter. In verse 18, Paul begins to tell again the story leading up to the birth of Isaac, the promised heir. But I want to pick out just a couple of verses from that. Look at verse 20. I know Abraham had his wobbles. And we'll hear more about that on, on, on Sunday mornings. And we've already heard a number from David. But look at his life overall. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He certainly worried about how it would be carried out. We've, we've seen that very clearly. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now there is a challenge, just like we had this morning, for us all, as to how we live and how we think. Are we, am I, fully persuaded that God is able to do what he had promised. Is that how I live day by day? Well, then come those tremendous words in verse 23, verse 24. Abraham did not waver. Yes, I'm getting behind my clicking. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. Not for him alone. He's not just telling the history of Abraham over again. But for us. You see, we are the stars in the sky. We are the sand and the seashore that God talked to Abraham about in the Genesis story. But to us, listen, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised our Lord from the dead. There is righteousness by faith applied to us. Not just Abraham. Not just a story in the past. This is us now brought into it very directly. Because as verse 25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised For our justification. What an amazing truth. What a a wonderful reality. And if you want to put it all into a nutshell. In very well known words. All sinners are justified in the same way. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone.